Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome and come on in. We're going to be joined by a friend of mine, Jim Davidson. Jim was raised in Massachusetts, where he worked in the family business as an industrial painter of high-voltage electrical towers. But early on, the mountains called him. He moved out to Colorado to attend college and to climb its big mountains. Jim earned a bachelor's and master's degree in environmental engineering and has worked cleaning up oil and gasoline spills throughout his career. His climbing career has taken him to Alaska, Argentina, Bolivia, and Tibet. He has received commendations twice by the U.S. National Park Service for assisting on remote mountain rescues. Jim was on Mount Everest during its tragic earthquake in 2015, then returned in 2017 to reach its summit. He is an award-winning author and has appeared on National Geographic, Smithsonian Channel, and Discovery. Welcome, Jim. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. It's great to be with you. And Jim, uh, I understand you had a you have a good drinking story for us involving Tibetan tea. Yeah, yeah. I've been to Nepal a couple times and Tibet once, and um, a drink they serve in the high Himalayas. It's tea, kind of like strong black tea, uh, but there's not much sugar up there, um, and so they don't put sugar in it. They put in salt, so it's like salty water tea. And, um, you know, they're high in the mountains. There's not uh, very good continuous refrigeration. So what they do with their, their yak milk, or their knack is a female yak, they take their knack milk and they turn it into butter primarily. And when that goes bad and rancid, they use that as a substitute for creamer. So what they do is they take a big giant spoonful of rancid yak butter, drop it into your salt water tea, and that's Tibetan tea. And, um, if you get really rancid yak butter, you got a nice scum of oil across the top, about a quarter inch thick. And so when they gave it to me in a tea house in, in Nepal, I was trying to drink the liquid without getting the rancid buttery scum in my mouth. So I'm trying to sip it underneath that layer of scum. Um, I only drank a little bit. And of course, if you take two sips, they immediately pour 2.1 sips back into your, your glass to keep it constantly full. So very kind people offering what they have, but it is an acquired taste. Well, I've got to ask, what does it taste like? Kind of like you might think. Salty and strong and bitter and oily with a slight rancid smell. It's great. You should try it if you ever get the chance. Well, that'll make you climb the mountains. <laughs> All right. I got to ask, you, you grew up in Massachusetts. The family business is industrial painting. And you were climbing up and painting high-voltage towers. Yes. What was that all about? Well, uh, my dad and uncles owned several painting businesses, and I started working for them when I was about eight or nine years old, sweeping floors and cleaning brushes. And by the time I was nine or 10, I was walking roofs with my dad. And by the time I was uh, 15 and a half, I could operate a crane, but I could not yet drive a car. So I had, had kind of an unusual upbringing. And when I was uh, 18 years old, and the next summer when I was 19, 
My dad got this job climbing and painting electrical towers, the big steel towers that carry six cables across the landscape. You've, you've seen them before. And they were anywhere from 40 feet tall to 240 feet tall. And up the top were six wires. And each wire was about as thick as your wrist and carrying 230,000 volts. And I thought, well, I know how to climb the electrical towers. I'm, I'm sure they're going to shut off the electricity if we're going to go up there, right? And my dad says, no, they can't shut it off. That's the power for the whole county. We have to go up and work around that. So I spent two summers working with my dad, and we'd have um, three men or four men on the ground as safety men, and four men painting the towers, including myself, one man per side, and we'd climb to the top and paint our way down. And um, the electricity was just buzzing. And on the humid days, the four-foot-long ceramic insulators weren't enough to keep the electricity from the tower. So a low-level voltage would run through the, all the steel of the tower. So when you grabbed onto the tower to keep yourself from falling 200 feet to the ground, it was like fire ants crawling on your hand the whole time. So we didn't like going up there on the humid days. Uh, but I spent two summers doing that and uh, made really good money. I made 10 bucks an hour when the minimum wage was $3.35 an hour. And so it was triple uh, minimum wage. But as I look back now, I'm not sure it was really worth it. <laughs> well, as if that wasn't enough of adrenaline rush, you heard the calling of the mountains. Now, Massachusetts isn't known for its peaks. What attracted you to mountain climbing? Yeah, it's, it wasn't known for its peaks at all. Um, and I wasn't really known for my athletic ability. So the fact that I became a mountain climber at all is fairly unusual. Uh, literally in high school, I couldn't even run the mile uh, in the PE class. I had to walk the end of it. But uh, I started uh, getting fit, working uh, those industrial painting jobs with my dad. And then when I got into uh, college, I went on a backpacking trip in Maine. And I was just stunned by the beauty of the wilderness. And I looked up at the higher mountains, which were probably a, warp, a whopping 4,000 feet tall. And I could tell that the wildest part of the main wilderness was up, up there on the mountaintops. And I thought, man, I, I want to do more mountain climbing. I want to do some mountain climbing. So I signed up for a rock climbing class and I signed up for a winter ice climbing class in Mount Washington. And that got me going when I was 19 years old, climbing peaks around New England. But I knew that the biggest peaks, of course, were not in New England. I was going to have to travel far away. And so that's eventually what had me move to the Rockies and start climbing in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado and Wyoming. And from there, you spent almost 40 years now as a mountaineer? Yeah, yeah. I spent about 16 years climbing peaks in Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, state of Washington, all over the United States. And that was working on getting my rock climbing and ice climbing skills up to speed in the high mountain setting, what we call alpine climbing. And a lot of skills had to go with that, avalanche awareness and safe travel and navigation and backpacking skills and first aid. So it takes a long time to acquire those skills. I spent about 16 years doing that, uh, but I still wanted to go higher. So I started steering myself towards high altitude climbing. So I sought opportunities to hang out with people that had been in those high mountains in the hopes that maybe someday I'd get a chance to go. And so eventually I started going on the high altitude peaks. Um, you know, I went to Argentina and Nepal and then uh, Bolivia, and it just kind of expanded from there. And I spent about 16 years slowly building this broad resume of higher and higher peaks, thinking about maybe someday I'd get a chance to climb some of the bigger peaks in the world. And these, uh, these trips have taken you, as you said, all over the world. In all of your travels, what's the strangest thing you've ever come across? Yeah, I uh, saw lots of strange little things here and there, but um, probably the chief among them was uh, we were climbing a volcano in Ecuador called Cotopaxi. It's about 19,300 feet tall. And um, I was one of the two co-leaders. We were taking college students with us. And so I was leading the rope up with a, um, my teammates behind me in one rope and then a second rope behind me with my co-leader, Rodney. So I led up to the summit, uh, put in some anchors into the snow and turned around and started belaying up the next climber up the steep little headwall. And as I'm belaying him up, I've got a moment to look around. And when I look 
Below me, I was looking down on the tops of clouds, which is pretty common on the high mountains in South America. And as I looked down on the top of the clouds, I saw this giant shadow of a human being. And I moved right and left, and the shadow moved with me, and I realized it's me. I wasn't quite sure, and I waved my arm, and I could see my arm shadow waving on the top of the clouds. And what it is, it's called the Brocken Spectre, or the Spectre of Brocken. And it forms when the sun is up behind you, like kind of up behind your neck, and the sunlight's going by you, and your shadow gets broadcast down on the tops of clouds. And so you're seeing this giant shadow of yourself, and because the sun was behind me, and because it was the right type of cloud with uh, basically the same size water droplets, I also saw a halo around me. They call it a mountain halo. And it's basically a rainbow, very, very bright, and it's perfectly circular. It kind of starts at one shoulder, and it goes around your head. So you have this saint-like halo around your head, and you can see your shadow below you. Uh, it's called a specter of Brocken with a solar glory. And uh, it was pretty wild to look at. I, I tried to take a picture of it, and you can see a little bit of it in the photo. But it's very fleeting, and it's just the right circumstances of cloud and moisture and position and sun. And uh, that's an image that'll stay with me the rest of my life. A good omen, too, I would think. Well, at the moment, I thought I was a little bit saintly, but uh, since then, nothing saintly has happened to me or from me. So I think, I think it was just a weather phenomenon, but I'll take it. Climbing is a dangerous endeavor, especially going higher, steeper, farther away, and more remote areas. Has there ever been a time where you came close to not making it back? Yeah, yeah. I've had you know, several you know, close calls in 39 years of being a climber and an ice climber and a high-altitude climber. Uh, but the biggest, most obvious one was what happened on Mount Rainier up in the state of Washington in 1992. I'd been a climber about 10 years. And I went to go climb it with my good friend and a regular climbing partner and really my mentor in alpine climbing. And his name was Mike Price. And he'd been climbing longer than me, about 14 years. So he was more experienced. Also, he was an outward bound instructor and he worked on search and rescue in Antarctica. So even though I was reasonably experienced, Mike was above me in all categories. And he taught me a lot about alpine climbing. We spent about six years being partners. And um, we went up to go climb a difficult route on Mount Rainier called the Liberty Ridge. And it's on the north side of the mountain. It's not climbed very often because it's pretty steep and requires rock climbing skills and ice and a lot of glacial travel. And it's a pretty dangerous route. Um, so we knew we'd be on it for a couple of days. And after about three and a half days, we summited in pretty good weather. And it was uh, June 21st, 1992. Well, first day of summer. So it made it the longest, sunniest day of the year. We started down the mountain, and everything was looking pretty good for a while. We dropped down to 13,000 feet, 12,000 feet. We were about one and a, maybe one mile or so from the edge of the glacier. Pretty easy ground in front of us. And we'd been crossing glaciers for three and a half days, and we're roped together for safety, as you know climbers do, because I know you've been on Mount Rainier as well. And um, I was going down first and probing with my ice axe to, to check that the snow was solid, because sometimes on those glaciers, as you know, they get those big cracks called crevasses. And those crevasses can be 50 feet deep or deeper. And sometimes they're obvious and we can just walk around them, but sometimes they're hidden under the snow. And that's what got us that day. There was a, a big layer of snow and formed a bridge called a snow bridge going across one of these crevasses. And even though I probed with my ice axe, it felt solid and sound solid. So I stepped ahead. And when I did, that's when I found out it wasn't solid snow. It was a weak snow bridge. And that snow bridge collapsed beneath my feet and into the crevasse I went. Then what happened? Well, um, I started plumbing down, picking up speed. I tried to swing my ice axes to hook the sides of the crevasse, but I couldn't reach either side. And sort of an instinct as a climber told me this was a big, big crevasse. And I started picking up speed, more speed. And I was thinking, come on, Mike, stop me, stop me. 
because we're tied about 50 feet apart and we keep the rope tight as our standard procedure, of course. And Mike should have been stopping me. And I, I felt myself slowing down and I thought it was going to come to a stop. And all of a sudden I accelerated into the darkness, even faster into the crevasse and even deeper. I didn't know what happened then, but I figured out later what happened was my partner, Mike, had dug in with his ice axe and it slowed me down, like I said, but the snow was really soft. It was about noontime on June 21st, the longest, sunniest day of the year. And the sun had baked its way through the snow. And we'd been on the north side of the mountain for a couple of days, and we didn't know it had been record high temperatures on this side of the mountain and elsewhere, like in Seattle. And the soft, wet snow had collapsed underneath me and dropped me in. Mike dug in with his ice axe, but he couldn't stop. And the two of us tied together, plummeted deep in the crevasse, and we wound up going 80 feet into the crevasse. I came to a grinding halt on a snow bridge. Snow fell on me. Mike fell, more snow. And uh, I eventually managed to free one hand and clear my face off. But before I could get to my partner, Mike, he stopped breathing. And I was in a panic and I had to dig snow off his face. And I was still trapped in the snow up to my chest, but I managed to check him for vital signs and he didn't have any. And I started doing CPR on my friend there in the darkness. And I, I don't know how long I did CPR, maybe 15 or 20 minutes, but I was trapped behind him and below him, still buried in the snow. And I couldn't do compressions the right way. And after about 20 minutes, I kept checking for vitals and I stopped. And there in the darkness, my friend Mike passed away and I was trapped in the snow devastated the loss of my friend and trapped in the crevasse. And I didn't think I was going to make it home that day. 80 feet down that crevasse. That's a long fall. I don't think I would have survived except for the fact that my partner, Mike, did his job. He slowed me down for that first 50 feet. So I really only free fell the last 30 feet and landed in a snow pile that absorbed some of the shock. And my pack kind of wedged between the two ice wall and it got really wedged in. I couldn't even get it out of there, but it uh, kind of softened the blow when I landed. So I eventually extricated myself and I looked, looked up. And like you said, looking up 80 feet at that surface, I could see a little hole in the snow bridge that had collapsed beneath my feet and where Mike had been dragged in the crevasse. And uh, the walls went about 80 degrees and then dead vertical. And then they overhung. And I thought, there's no way I can climb out of this. It's, a, it's kind of a long story. And I, I almost didn't even try, frankly. I was so afraid that I wouldn't be able to do it. I thought about not trying, but I realized I, I had to try. My friend Mike just gave his life to save me. I couldn't just fail before I even tried. So I had to do something. It took me a while to figure out a plan, but eventually I used the limited ice gear we had to free climb, uh, swinging my ice axes and kicking my crampons. And I also had to aid climb, which was very tedious and very exhausting. And I had to rely upon gear and use a bunch of tricks. And I, eventually I made it out of there, but I was devastated the loss of my friend. And it took a long time before I could talk about that story and share it with others. And eventually I put it into a book, uh, co-wrote it with my writing partner, Kevin. It's called The Ledge came out about uh, 10 years ago. It's still out there in paperback and ebook. And I share the story about how I climbed out of there and how I slowly tried to recover from that incident and try and carry forward the honor and the, the lessons that Mike had taught me over the years of being my partner. There's a point down there on the ledge. Your partner's dead. It's devastating. It's your mentor. You must have been fairly injured also, even though the fall was slowed. It's still a big impact. How do you gather yourself to climb that 80 feet up basically a sheer ice wall. I struggled for about the first half hour or 45 minutes with that very question. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to climb out to get to see my wife again. I, I knew I had to climb to try and let Mike's parents know what happened to him and to tell them how Mike had done a job as a great partner and saved my life. But I was terrified. I mean, I, I was a good ice climber. I led ice for, you know, about 10 years or so, but I was not a world-class ice climber. And back in 1992, we had older crampons and straight shafted ice tools. And I thought nobody on the planet's climbing overhanging ice uh, with these tools, certainly not me. 
And I struggled. Uh, I wanted to give up. I didn't even want to try because I was so afraid. But I just realized that I owed it to Mike to give it my best because he had done his best and it, it was up to me now. And that's what climbing partners do. You take turns taking on the tough conditions and doing your best you can for the team. And it was also part of honoring what my dad had taught me all those years in construction that you don't you don't quit just because the job's hard and you don't shrug it off just because you're afraid. And you certainly don't quit when other people are counting on you. You give it your all no matter what. Even if it seems like you can't get it done, you give it your all. And so I really didn't think I was going to get out. And I really didn't think I'd live long term because I did have injuries. I was spitting up blood for a while. I had crushed disc in my neck. I had numbness in my arm and legs. Uh, so I had a lot of problems getting out of there. But I felt like I owed it to Mike and to my dad and other things I've learned from other people. So it was really that trying to honor the things that people had handed to me to try and do my job when the time came and try to just be resilient, even in the face of those very scary and difficult odds. It brings up a point. You don't jump into this all at once. You got to take it step by step in your training, in your skills. Because if you hadn't been all those years in Colorado, learning all the ice climbing techniques, the first aid and, and the other skills, you know, if you just walked up there at Mount Rainier with a couple of climbs under your belt, we may not be having this conversation. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree with that completely from an experience standpoint, from a being mentored by people who know more than you and by having a broad, broad base of experience. You know, you, you want to know what it's like to, to hike an easy trail in the dark, to hike a hard trail in the dark, to hike a trail in the rain, to get snowed on, to run out of water, uh, to, to get lost a little bit and have to find your way back out again. You need all those skills under your belt before you go in the mountains. And then you need rock climbing and ice climbing and snow climbing and what happens when you run low on anchors. And I also got a lot of that from reading uh, mountaineering books and articles in climbing magazines. And I always had the theory that every book of, of mountaineering, or for that matter, sailing or adventuring or, or navigation, all those things have buried tips inside there, little tricks of the trade, uh, things that people had invented along the way. And when I read all those books over decades, I tried to always pull one or two of those gems out with me. And when I was down inside that crevasse, I relied upon another mountaineering, mountaineering book I'd read called Touching the Void about a man named Joe Simpson who fell into a crevasse in Peru. And some of the things he did, I had to use down there. And some of the aid climbing skills that I'd read about, and I'd practiced them a few times, but I was not a proficient aid climber, all of those tricks came to bear, and I had to string them all together. And you're right, if I'd only been climbing one or two seasons, I probably would have never even imagined how to get out, let alone be able to implement it. So like you, I'm a big fan of a broad base of experience, move slowly up the ladder, move slowly onto longer trips, go with really good friends, and also try to be the partner that you'd like to have. In other words, get enough skills and get really good at some things so that other people would say, you know what, that guy, Michael, that guy, Jim, we, we want them on our team. Maybe you're great at first aid or navigation or ice or rock or, or the language skills, but have some really strong skills so that other teams want to have you on their team. And as a result, it's kind of an upward spiral. We keep raising the standards for each other, bringing our skills up and ho hopefully being able to apply them to bigger and bigger adventures. Which brings me to Everest. 2015. Yes. Was this your first trip to Everest? Yes, it was. I'd been to Nepal three times before and uh, Tibet once, and I'd climbed the sixth highest peak in the world called Chaoyu, and that went successfully. But, uh, you know, I'd been thinking about Everest for over 30, 35 years by that point. And so I was, uh, felt like I was well-trained, but I was still pretty scared because I'd read all the Everest books and, and met some climbers, and I knew how serious it was to go to Everest. But finally, in 2015, I felt like it was my time. And so that's when I went for the first time. Let's talk about Everest 2015. This is sort of a culmination, I would think, of 
your lifelong pursuit as, as a high altitude climber. You get to base camp. Can you take us there? What what will we see in here at base camp? And what are the people like there? Uh, you know, Everest Base Camp, it, just the name carries weight and, and mystery, mystery to it. Um, you know, you fly into Kathmandu, Nepal, which is crazy enough. And then you gather some gear and you fly into a tiny little airstrip called uh, Lukla. It's up in the mountains at about 9,000 feet. And then we trek very slowly up the Kumbu Valley. And you're seeing all these Buddhist temples and you, you hear chanting sometimes at the temples and you meet monks and you meet Sherpa high altitude guides and you see yaks going by carrying sacks of wheat flour and, and trading with Tibetan traders just over the border, which is about 15 miles north. And after all that, weeks of practice, you finally arrive at Everest Base Camp. It's 17,500 feet. And you can see the lower part of the Kumbu Glacier, where the glacier kind of slows down and melts in the valley. But that glacier goes up and curves around the corner and becomes the Kumbu Icefall, where the glacier loses about 2,000 vertical feet in about a mile, mile and a quarter. And the ice of the glacier is all broken up into thousands of ice blocks and thousands of crevasses. And you're surrounded by a dozen peaks, anywhere from 19,000 feet up to Everest itself at 29,000. And just being there, just standing in its presence, it's, it's majestic, it's awesome, but it's also very weighty when you think, I feel short of breath and scared and exhausted, and I'm only at base camp, and we have almost 12,000 vertical feet to go. What are the people like that are there at the camp? Well, uh, of course, there's the Nepali people, and most of the Nepali people are of the Sherpa ethnic origin. Um, you'll hear the word Sherpa used for job description sometimes, but it's an ethnic group as well. And it, it's Tibetan, it means people from the east, and they've lived up there for at least 600 years. And there are other uh, ethnic groups up there as well, Rai people, and uh, ethnic groups from other valleys next to the Kumbu Valley of Everest. Um, so it's a diversity in the Nepali people. And then among the visitors, like myself, usually there's people from dozens and dozens of countries, uh, Asia, South America, North America, Europe. And so it's just a, this big amalgam of this big slurring stew of cultures and languages and foods. Uh, and you get to meet people from all over the world. And inevitably, you wind up bumping into somebody you know from prior expeditions. So only yell out your name and you look up and it's the guy you met in Bolivia six years ago or the guy you met on Denali three years ago. And you give a big embrace and uh, you literally run into friends from all over the world because it's, uh, you know, once you've got a, a couple of years of high altitude climbing experience, we're all kind of moving on the same circuit and you will bump into some people. So it kind of feels like as foreign as anything can be from your hometown, but also it feels a little bit like you're where you belong because uh, you run into the friends and you're all there for the same reason to pay respects to the mountains and try and climb them if you can. Who is on your climbing team? Uh, I went with a group called uh, IMG, International Mountain Guides out of Seattle. They're kind of the commercial operator. And I had been on uh, one previous expedition with them and uh, run into some of the guides when I was climbing on my own on Rainier and other places. So uh, the... Guides I knew some of, but not all of. I met some of them for the first time on the trip. Uh, same with the uh, Sherpa high altitude workers and the uh, the senior guides. I'd climb with some of them in, uh, in Tibet and knew even the cooks and the cooks assistants and some of our base camp managers. I knew them from previous expeditions. Um, but also new people I met from America, from Europe, and from Nepal. Uh, we, we had a pretty big team. We had about uh, 30 climbers altogether from around the world and probably close to 45 Sherpas and, and high altitude pours from Nepal as well. So we were a pretty large team. And then, of course, there's probably close to 50 other teams scattered across base camp. Uh, base camp can have as many as eight, 900 people, almost close to 1,000 people at its peak during the climbing season in the spring. What was the general plan for the climb? Well, some people might think that, you know, by the time you get to base camp, you're ready to climb the mountain and we start climbing. But in fact, 
It doesn't nearly go that fast or that easy. Uh, we go to Nepal about six or seven weeks before we will make our summit push because it takes us, you know, five days of travel around the world and two weeks to get, to get to base camp. But even when we get to base camp, we still have four more weeks of effort to put in before we can make our summit push because the air is so thin that our bodies have to get acclimatized to that thin air by growing red blood cells. So we don't climb Everest in one push. Even the strongest Olympian couldn't do that. So what we have to do is we go partway to camp one and come down and rest. We rest for about three days while our body recovers muscular strength and grows from red blood cells. Then we go up to camp one and we spend two miserable nights there, get a little bit adjusted and move up to camp two and spend two miserable nights there. Then go all the way back down to base camp and rest up. Then we go back up to camps one, two, and three, and then go back to the base camp and rest up. And only then, after four weeks of that, going up and down the slopes, doing those rotations, as we call it, by then your body is as acclimatized as it can be, usually to about 23, 24,000 feet. And that's when we're ready to make the five-day push for the summit. So it takes a long time and it takes a lot of patience while you're going through all that suffering at the high altitude. Between base camp and camp one, is that where the, the falls are? Yes, the Kumbu Icefall that, that I mentioned, you're, you're exactly right. So the Kumbu Icefall goes from about mm, 18,000 feet up to about 19,500. And it is just a three-dimensional pile of ice blocks. It's like walking through a Jenga pile. Uh, there are blocks above you. There are gaping crevasses below you. There are blocks leaning in. It looks like something that Dr. Seuss drew as, as a glacier or a giant pile of ice cubes. And the thing is, it's, it's all a glacier, so it's all moving. In fact, where the Kumbu Icefall is the most broken up, it's also the most squeezed by the rock walls on each side. So basic science says when you reduce the cross-sectional area, the velocity has to pick up. It's like a Venturi effect. So that means the ice in there is flowing about three feet to four feet per day. But it doesn't move every day. It might stay still for 10 days and then suddenly jump forward 50 feet. And when it does that, crevasses open up beneath you, the ice blocks above you can fall down, and people are running and scampering out of the way. So Climbing through the Kumbu Icefall is one of the most dangerous and ridiculous places I've ever been in three decades plus of climbing. That's my understanding from talking to folks that have been there that that may be the most dangerous part of the whole climb is making it through that icefall. Yeah, statistically it is. That's where most people have died on the mountains. I mean, it gets more dangerous as we get higher because the air gets thinner and the weather gets more punishing. But as far as where the most people have died, it's in the Kumbu Icefall. And there have been some pretty bad accidents because there can even be other icefalls from different glaciers that are a thousand feet or more above you, and they can let loose uh, blocks of ice. Sadly, in 2014, a large chunk of ice broke off a thousand feet above the Kumbu Icefall and came down like a bomb. And some geographers estimated that it was somewhere in the range of up to 31 million pounds of ice fell 1,000 vertical feet and just shattered like an ice bomb and sadly killed 16 Nepali high altitude workers that day. And you have to walk right through that zone every time you go up and right through that zone every time you come down. We go up and down the mountain repeatedly, uh, like we were talking about. Yeah, it's just fate or chance going through yes. that uh, icefall. Yeah, it's a big part of it. And, and so the Sherpa guides and porters who go through the icefall more than someone like myself, they, they carry more weight and they carry the equipment up the hill. They go through even more times. So they will tend to uh, have small ceremonies at the Buddhist altar before we leave base camp. And they throw some sacred rice at the more dangerous places to try and ask for safety and forgiveness for everybody who passes through the area. It's, uh, and there is a large component of fate. You can be fast and you can be strong, but you're still in that icefall for hours and hours at a time, climbing over those Jenga blocks and under those, those Jenga blocks of ice. Yeah, and we see those pictures of, uh, of you old climbers walking across the crevasses on those small little ladders. 
Yeah. Um, and you can imagine after my Mount Rainier experience, I am not very fond of crevasses and you literally have to cross hundreds and hundreds of them. Most of them we can walk around and those ropes and ladders, as you described, were put in by a group called the Icefall Doctors. And they're doctors, they're not medical doctors, but they're like doctors because they fix the route even when it gets broken up. So they work as a dedicated team and everybody in base camp pitches in a little money to hire these guys and they're experts at stringing the ropes and dropping ladders. Now, I've got a lot of experience on ladders and I know that they're supposed to be set a certain way against a building, but that's not what they do here. They drop them horizontally and you walk across them like a plank. When you're walking across, they bounce up and down and they sway a little bit and you're looking between the rungs and between your feet and you can see crevasses that are 120, 150 feet right beneath your feet. So when I go across those, I always try and remember the words my dad told me, you know, focus on the rungs, not the drop. Uh, because if you stare at the drop, uh, you'll freak yourself out. You just stare at the rungs, which are the solution. Kind of like riding a bike between telephone poles. You don't stare at the telephone pole. You're aware of the telephone poles and the trees, and you look ahead and navigate yourself through it. You're aware of the danger, but try not to focus on it. I remember uh, on Rainier, as we were crossing through some crevasses, and in some respects, they're beautiful because it's, they start out as at the top when you're looking down, kind of a, a whitish color. It starts turning a light blue, darker blue, darker, darker, darker. And the, the color change is quite beautiful, except if you're falling down or having to climb back up. But yes, it is something. You, just, you describe it well. It, it, it has its own artistic beauty. And it's deep, deep shades of blue. And the reason that it's all blue down there is because the, when the sunlight goes through the glacial ice, the ice itself filters out the yellows, the greens, the reds, and oranges. So the only light that gets through is blue. So the deeper you go, the bluer it gets until you look down and they appear pitch dark at the bottom. And I, I know you know that gives you a, kind of a sinking feeling to your stomach when you look into one of them. Yeah, the abyss. Yeah. Now, on this climb in 2015, you found yourself, I believe, on the 25th of April, about 20,000 feet. What was happening at that time with you? What part of the climb were you on? Well, uh, it was the day that finally, after all these training runs and practice rotations, we were finally going to start climbing Mount Everest. After, you know, 33 years of being a climber, I'm finally climbing Mount Everest. So we left base camp uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, and we climb at night, hopefully when it's most cold and the glacier's um, not moving as much and the avalanches are reduced. So we climb through the most dangerous part of the Kumbu Icefall at night. And we got to Camp 1 at about 19,700 feet after about mm, six hours of climbing, which is a decent speed for the first trip through the icefall. We got to Camp 1, and we crawled into our tents, and we're resting in our sleeping bags because we'd been up basically all night since about 1, one o'clock in the morning, including getting ready and breakfast. And uh, my tentmate Bart and I were laying in the tent, kind of half asleep, napping. And it was my first day out of base camp, finally climbing Mount Everest. But it became a really momentous day because that's the day that a giant earthquake slammed into the Himalayas. It was the biggest earthquake to hit Nepal in 81 years at 7.8 magnitude. And suddenly we were woken out of our naps to hear an avalanche noise near our tent coming down one of these big vertical walls above us at Camp 1. And the walls there are 4,000 feet tall vertically, up to 6,000 feet tall on the other side. And we heard the avalanche, but we're half asleep. And we really weren't scared because on Everest, you hear them every day. But they're usually miles away and go in another valley and going in a different direction. Most of the time, it poses no risk to you at all. So I kind of listen, and Bart's half-wake. He goes, avalanche? I go, yeah, I think so. But it kept getting louder and louder and sounded like it was coming closer. I go, boy, that sounds close. And we both sat up, and then all of a sudden, a second avalanche started on the other wall a couple hundred yards from our tent. And this one was even louder, coming down even a bigger wall, probably even faster. And I thought to myself, 
I'm a geologist. I'm thinking two avalanches at the same time on different exposures, different aspects of slope. What is, how can that be? And all of a sudden, our tent shot up into the air about eight inches, hovered, and dropped back down. And then went back up into the air again and down. And that was the whole glacier was lifting beneath our tent. Thousand foot thick of ice, three miles long, a mile wide. And this block of ice was just rippling as waves of the earthquake rippled through the glacier beneath us. And that's when we knew it was a big earthquake. Power to lift up that thousand foot glacier. Just immense. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine how many tons it, it must weigh, millions of tons. And the waves were just rippling through. It's like being in the tent was like being in a small little life raft on the ocean when ocean swells go beneath the, the life raft and just lift the life raft, or in this case, our tent, up into the air and down. We just kept going up and down. And it was tossing us around so much, we couldn't even stand up on our knees. We were getting knocked down to the ground as trying to get onto our knees to open the tent. And uh, I yelled to Bart, I said, get out, get out of the tent because we don't want to be in the tent when the avalanches approach, because I've had avalanche training. And what will happen is that the surface area of the tent will act like a sail or, or like a sea anchor and will drag us underneath the approaching snow. We want to be outside where we have somewhat of a chance to actually swim on top of it. And they'll, they'll teach you that in avalanche classes, that uh, the, the cascading avalanche is air and snow mixed together. It's basically a liquid. So you can kind of swim on top of this liquid. So if you get caught in an avalanche, you can try and swim on top. No, no guarantees. But we ran out of the tent to be more capable to survive and swim on top, also hoping to be able to see the avalanches. Maybe it's not coming at us. Maybe it's going the other direction. We're really not at risk. But it was all cloudy, and we couldn't see anything. Visibility was about 50 feet. And so we could hear the avalanches coming from both sides and getting louder, but we didn't know how close they were, and we didn't know which one was going to hit us first. Well, take us to that point that you, you all finally make it out of the tent. You know you got to scramble out of there because the avalanche may take you under. You come out of the tent, and what do you see? Well, what I see is my other teammates scrambling out of the, their tents, uh, you know, whether they're Western climbers like myself or Nepali guides. There were about 30 of us up there at that point, about 15 Western climbers and about 15 Nepali people. And uh, everyone's running out of the tent, looking into the clouds, looking right, looking left, and pointing at the clouds. And then all of a sudden, wind started to hit us from one side, and the wind went from zero miles per hour up to about 40 miles an hour in just seconds. And then a wind gust came from the other side, pushing us against that first wind direction. And this wasn't wind from the weather having changed suddenly. I knew what it was. It was wind from the avalanches. And what that means is these avalanches are so big that they are bulldozing the air out from in front of it. And because we are in that wind from that approaching avalanche, that means we are directly in the path of the avalanches. And so both these avalanches come coming at us. So the wind would blow 40 miles an hour one way. Two seconds later, it would blow the other way. And all this pulverized ice dust started falling out of the sky, uh, falling down vertically and blowing sideways. And it got so thick that we couldn't breathe. So one by one, without talking about it, we started diving back into our tents. And at that point, I turned on my GoPro camera and I caught a little bit of footage as the last two teammates of mine, about 10 feet away, disappeared into the swirling white cloud. I dove in the tent and I was in the tent by myself. My partner, Bart, was, I don't know where. He wasn't with me at that moment, hopefully in another tent. And for about three minutes, the ground shook and the tents blew back and forth and the wind changed direction and ice particles fell on the tent. And then it all kind of quieted down. But for those three minutes, I was just clutching my avalanche beacon against me, hoping that if I got buried, it would send out an electronic signal. Maybe my teammates could find me. But I was pretty sure we weren't going to make it through because it was just an incredible experience and incredible noise. Because you had two large avalanches from both sides descending down on your camp. Is that how it was? Yeah, and, and we couldn't see where they came from. And we didn't know until the next day what happened with those avalanches because it was cloudy and stormy all afternoon that day of the earthquake. 
But the next day when the weather cleared in the morning, we got to see those avalanches. And on one side, they got within about 300 yards of our tent and kind of got swallowed by giant crevasses and ran out of speed. So they did not reach us. And on the other side of the valley, the, the Western Coombe, the, or the Valley of Silence, as it's called, those avalanches got within about 100 yards of our tent before they ran out of speed. And we just sat right there in the middle. And it's not because we were so smart we knew where to camp. It's because we listened to our predecessors. And over six decades, Sherpas and climbers had accumulated some, some ground knowledge, some, uh, some hard-won you know, information on the ground. They said, camp right about here. It's the safest spot when avalanches happen. And by golly, that's what kept us alive. And nobody in Camp One, on my team or other teams, was hurt or killed. We were very, very lucky. It's miraculous. You mentioned an avalanche beacon. What is that? It's a small electronic device. It's about the size of your hand, about the palm of your hand. Um, runs on batteries. And it's kind of like a locating device, really. It sends out an electronic signal. And I wear one to broadcast my signal. And everybody else on the team is wearing one to broadcast theirs. And if one of our team gets buried, usually the person with the most experience will instruct us. They'll go, everybody turns to receive. And they'll turn to receive. And we'll all be receiving trying to find the one person who's still on transmit, our buried teammate. And we can use it to basically do a little grid pattern. Or these days, we can even go more directly upon the electronic signals and go right over to where that person is, then we have to use small shovels and avalanche probes, kind of like tent poles that are about 10 feet long, to probe down in the snow, and we have to dig that person out. You've got about 30 minutes uh, uh, before the chances of them surviving drop below 50-50. So you've got to find them very fast. And that's a skill you learn by taking avalanche awareness and avoidance seminars. And also we practice every year with our beacons here in Colorado and elsewhere. Uh, you practice finding each other, you practice digging out beacons, because like any skill, it needs to be kept up. So you have to keep those skills up because if you're buried, you want your partners to find you. And if your friend is buried, you want to find them as fast as you can. And that's just one small skill set of what you need to go into the big mountains. Again, relying on the skills, tenacity, and uh, awareness of your teammates to when you're in trouble. Absolutely. And that's, that's why you pick good teammates and you want to try and be a good teammate by having all those skills. Because, you know, you're watching out for their lives and they're watching out for your life. And that's part of being a good team. And, and that's, how, that's how we get big things done in dangerous situations. Let's go back to that, that event. You come out of the tent, the ice particles start to settle. You understand that something huge has happened. What do you do next? Well, you know, we kind of checked with each other, first of all. And, and I, I was looking for my teammate, Bart. And what happened is he just dove in another tent that was like a kitchen tent where many of the Sherpa were. And when he came out, we just like, Bart, Jim, you know, give each other a hug and find out we're okay. And uh, I kept saying, we got to do a head count. We got to do a head count. So we kind of went around, you know, where's Bob? Where's Sue? You know, where's Dawa? Where's PK? And, you know, we, we found everybody accounted for. And that's how we knew nobody was missing from our camp because the wind could have blown you right out of camp and right into one of the crevasses, which were just 10 feet away from our tents. So we were all set. And then we got on the radio and we started yelling to other expeditions nearby, you know, different teams from different countries. And everybody at Camp One was fine. We got on the radio and called up to some of our teammates that were up at Camp 2, about another 1,800 feet higher. They were all set up there as well. But then we called down to base camp, and that's where we found out where the real disaster was. Because they had had different avalanches in base camp, but instead of just wind and ice particles like we had, their avalanches carried rocks, lots and lots of rocks. It came off another peak right behind base camp called Pumori and Lingtron, two different peaks. And what happened was a whole chunk of the ridge collapsed came down as a giant avalanche. And as I assembled some data later, I was a, I'm a geologist, so I did a little research on it. And that avalanche came down 3,000 vertical feet and it landed with so much force that it splashed sideways and the wind and the momentum of it carried it over a mile laterally across the Kumbu Valley floor. And that avalanche ripped right through the middle of base camp, took out about 100 tents, 
picked up the tents and heavy barrels of equipment and duffel bags and people and just threw them all over the glacier for about a quarter mile, third of a mile in the downwind direction. And very sadly, 70 people were severely wounded and 18 people were killed that day, making it the deadliest day ever on Mount Everest. There was a point in time where you and others tried to obtain medical gear that had been buried. Was that up at the base at the camp that you were at? Uh, no, the, you're correct about that, that incident. That was uh, about uh, two days later uh, when we finally made it down to base camp. We were we were trapped at Camp One for a full day. We knew that the route below us was probably wrecked. Uh, we were talking to our teammates on the radio. And we wanted to go down, but we were sure, certain that those ladders and ropes had been damaged, so we couldn't go down. A full 24 hours passed, and they managed to fly out those 70 wounded people on helicopters. And we started thinking about assembling a team to go down and try and rebuild the route. Now, building the route through the Kumbh Icefall can take two or three weeks and requires like two miles of rope and, you know, 100 sections of ladder. We didn't have all that standing by, but maybe somehow we can scavenge enough. And when we sent a team of uh, two guides and a Sherpa guide down, they were down in the Kumbh Icefall among those ice blocks, kind of scoping it out. And then we had a huge aftershock, 6.8 magnitude. Now, I knew as a geologist we were going to have those aftershocks, and I knew they could be big, so I had warned our expedition leader. It was just bad timing that our, our scouting party was down there in the icefall when that major aftershock hit. Fortunately, nothing fell on them. They scampered back up and said, the route is wiped out. So we had to wait another 24 hours, and so about 44 hours after the quake, we flew down in helicopters, which was a very precarious and an unprecedented rescue. Um, these helicopters can normally carry five or six people, but at that altitude, the air is so thin, they can only carry three people, a very brave pilot and two climbers or Sherpas per load. So they ran four helicopters back and forth all day. And after about uh, 80 loads or so, they got all 160 people off the mountain and we got to base camp and we're glad to be there. And that's when that incident happened where I got involved in a small team. I got to the ground. I was so glad to be off the mountain. I called my wife and within the hour of landing, I was in this team doing, like you said, to go over and dig with our hands and with shovels and literally clawing through the rocks with our fingers and, and our gloved hands, trying to recover some medical equipment from the one and only medical tent that had been overrun by the avalanche debris. The Kumbh Icefall is on a good day dangerous. I can't imagine you all trying to make it through there, even if the, it was still somewhat intact with all those aftershocks coming through. Yeah, sometimes people who don't know much about the Kumbh Icefall or, or mountains, uh, they'll say, well, why don't you guys just climb back down? You came up. Well, the ropes and ladders were missing, number one. And they're like, well, you're supposed to be world-class climbers with really good guides and Sherpas. You know, it may be a tough climb. Just come on down. But the thing is, you'd be climbing free, completely unroped among these thousands of ice blocks. And like you said, on a, on a good day, it's the most dangerous place on Mount Everest. And now that the whole thing had been shooken up, in fact, when I flew out in the helicopter, I'm a geologist by trade, like I said, and I worked 20 years as a geologist, and I had a, a lot of training in glaciology, the study of glaciers. And I looked at some of those ice blocks we flew by, and I could see three-dimensional towers the size of Empire State Buildings just cracked in three different dimensions with very fresh, jagged edges. So there had been new ice blocks that had cracked and new crevasses that had opened up, and there was just collapsing stuff everywhere. So nobody in their right mind would want to be down in that ice fall when it was that unstable, knowing that there will be more aftershocks because after a quake that big, the aftershocks will last weeks, months, even years before the last of the aftershocks tapers away. And in fact, over the next few weeks, there were a large number of greater than 6.0 and even greater than 7.0 magnitude aftershocks. So flying us down seemed the only viable solution, but suddenly we found ourselves at base camp where this mass, ca mass casualty incident happened. So we tried to recover some equipment from uh, the overrun field hospital, and keeping one eye up on the Kumbh Icefall and the surrounding slopes, worried about more avalanches and aftershocks. 
I also got involved in a small team that was recovering some of the bodies and flying them back out of their families around the world. So it was a very somber time, very sobering time for the people in Nepal because it was a tragedy in base camp, but of course it was a bigger tragedy for Nepal. Almost 8,900 people lost their lives and tens of thousands of homes and tens of thousands of classrooms got wrecked. It was terrible for Nepal and even the neighboring countries had disasters going on. So it was being like smack dab in the middle of a, of a big disaster. How did you finally make it out of base camp? Well, we all, we all had the urge to flee for sure. We knew that the climb was over and the climb, frankly, at that point wasn't important at all. I mean, uh, the climbing is a recreational pursuit. It's a passion pursuit, but it wasn't important in the face of lives lost and homes wrecked. So we helped uh, around base camp a little bit and uh, we realized that our team, nobody got hurt. Uh, we had still had food and fuel and muscle and, and frankly time because we were still supposed to be on the mountain for another four or five weeks. So we descended very slowly and went to a village where a lot of our Sherpas were from, and we tried to help out there. We started helping disassemble partially collapsed homes, saving the slate roof pieces and saving the big log beams that are very difficult to come by in the high altitude, high altitude valleys, and uh, just passing the hat and collecting some money. And some of my teammates helped clean up a monastery that was partially collapsed in Portse as well. And we didn't know how we were going to get out. We thought we might have to walk all the way back to Jiri, which is kind of like uh, the old school approach to, to Mount Everest back in the 1950s. People walked in from Jiri and even lower. And I had once walked out that way with my wife in 1992. So it suddenly seemed like with technology gone and planes and helicopters, not certain that we might have to do it the old fashioned way and load things on yaks and march out 100, 120 miles. But as it turns out, eventually they started getting some flights going out of the mountains and out of Kathmandu. So after about 10, 12 days, we managed to fly out of the Khumbu Valley landed in Kathmandu, but we were back smack dab in another disaster zone. I mean, there were buildings in the streets. Um, there were thousands of people camped on the Royal Golf Course right next to the airport. There were dozens of planes from dozens of countries flying in sacks of rice and medical supplies. So we didn't know how we'd get out of Kathmandu, but eventually things started to calm down a little bit. And it took a couple more days, but eventually I flew out of Kathmandu and made it home. And I was a uh, a shattered, beaten person when I got home, but also racked with guilt. I mean, I got to come home to a stable house and a re refrigerator full of food. So I thought, I can't just do nothing. What can I do from here? But I realized I was home early. So I started speaking uh, to the media and speaking at public events to raise money for Nepal. And I actually work as a professional speaker. I tell adventure stories and lessons about resilience and teamwork and leadership. I do that for corporations and associations. So I applied the skills I had to tell the story of the quake. And so I did all kinds of presentations and media things, always raising money. And we raised a lot of money to help Nepal rebuild. And so that kind of kept me busy back here for a while after I returned to the States. Now, I want to ask you about that and lessons learned. But before we go there, two years later, you went back to the mountain? Yes, uh, but it was not a decision I made lightly. I mean, I'd been pretty shook up and I understood as a geologist that, you know, the, the earth shakes and the mountains form due to earthquakes, but haven't been in one. I wasn't too keen to be in one again. And my wife didn't want me going back either. Um, but I also knew that part of what I was doing when I was doing those uh, fundraisers was I was encouraging the listeners. I said, hey, Nepal's a beautiful country and tourism is one of their most important industries. So once Nepal settles down and rebuilds a little bit, they're really going to need tourists and climbers and truckers to come back to spend your dollars and spend your euros so that Nepali people don't think they're forgotten and they really need to get back to work. So when things calm down in Nepal, go back there, revisit the place and, and help Nepal out. And after I said that many, many times in interviews and lectures, I began to think to myself, hmm, <clears throat> maybe I should be walking my talk as well. And so I started thinking about going back. And when I looked into it, I found out that instead of having less avalanche risk, earthquake risk, excuse me, there was actually more now because of the way the plates tore. I studied a bunch of seismology reports and 
as I describe in my book, The Next Everest, I found out that there was going to be a higher likelihood of even bigger earthquakes. And I thought, oh, no, I, I don't want to go back and put myself through that again. But I also know as a scientist that it's not likely to happen on a one-year anniversary. It could be one year or 101 years. We don't know when it will happen. So I thought long and careful about it. But after thinking carefully, I decided in 2016 I would go back. I still wanted to try and climb Everest. I wanted to support my Sherpa friends in the country of Nepal, which is a special place in my heart. So in 2016, at the age of 53, going into 54, I trained all over again and went back to Mount Everest. And this time, made it to the top? Yep. It, it had more challenges. Uh, nothing nearly as big as the earthquake, of course. Uh, mostly the high altitude and, and illness, the typical things that happen up there. And it was a very slow process because we had to climb up and down the mountain over and over again. Uh, I was 54 and I was in the best shape of my life. And even though I was in the best shape of my life, uh, I lost about 22 pounds while I was climbing Mount Everest. And that might sound good from a weight loss standpoint. Uh, but when I got home, I found out that only two pounds of that was fat and 20 pounds of it was muscle. So I lost 20 pounds of muscle in about seven weeks. It probably took me 20 years to put that muscle on uh, at that age. Um, so climbing Mount Everest uh, is brutal, even though it helps now with our modern gear and warmer clothes and the help of the high altitude porters, it is still a brutal, brutal thing for your body. And after about uh, 60 days or so, I managed to reach the summit of Mount Everest. I think it was 56 days when I summited, actually. But after about 56 days, I managed to summit on May 22nd uh, with the same Sherpa I'd been with in 2015, PK Sherpa from Portsea. And we got lucky and got a good weather day. And it was just magical to be there, but also very, very humbling to finally make the top after all those years. Well, take us to that moment. You finally reached the top. Yeah, you know, at, at that point, I'd been a climber for 35 years. I'd read about Everest even before I was a climber. And I put in all this effort and done all these other peaks. And the closer we got to the summit, I, I, was, I was still worried about everything. I was worried about altitude sickness. I was worried about running out of oxygen. I was worried that I was going to go too slow. And that's why you need to know the mountains really well and yourself really well. Because I had been at high altitude a bunch. And so I kept doing sort of these self-checks. And I was almost like suspicious that something was still going to go wrong. It was going to pull us off track. And it wasn't until we went over the south summit at about 28,300 feet at about 2.30 in the morning. And I looked ahead and there were stars overhead and there's two ridges to the right and left. On one side, it's an 8,000 foot drop back down towards where we came from. And on the other side, it's an 11,000 foot drop back down to the east face of Mount Everest. And you're walking this little narrow ridge about three or four feet wide. Sometimes it's eight feet wide. Sometimes it's two feet wide. And you're walking this narrow ridge and it's called the Cornish Traverse with big like whipped cream cones of ice cream snow hanging off both sides of the ridge. And I looked across that and I realized that I had about a quarter mile to go and about 150 vertical feet and I was going to summit. I thought, I can't believe it. After all these years and about another hour, I'm probably going to summit Mount Everest. When we got down to that last 50 vertical feet, that last 200 feet, uh, one of my friends, Kareem, said to me, go slow, brother, go slow. And he was right. I wanted to soak it in. So I just went literally as slow as my legs could turn over. And at that point, I was so breathless, I probably couldn't have gone faster even if I wanted to. And I just walked as slow as I could those last dozen steps to the summit. And by that point, the sun was coming up over the eastern plains of Tibet. Stars were starting to fade. And after 35 years of climbing at about 419 in the morning, got to stand just one step below the summit of Mount Everest. And I didn't take that last step. I literally was one step away. And PK and I stopped because the Sherpa people believe that the mountains are gods, many things are gods. And when you stand on the summit, you're putting your dirty feet on the god's head. And that's disrespectful. So even after all that traveling, I stopped one step short and I figured that was close enough. I didn't have to put my foot up there. Just being lucky enough to get there was enough. And so I was very, very grateful and very, very humbled to get that far. 
and respect for the mountain. Yeah, thanks. It's we have to pay respect to the mountain. We were fortunate to be there and and be hosted by the Nepali people. So it was a, a it was there was no great celebration. There's no sense of conquering a mountain because nobody can conquer a mountain. I just felt like a tiny tiny flea on the back of a of an elephant. I was just glad to be there and to realize after that long journey, all the people that had helped me and taught me so much that I was able to glue it all together on a good weather night and, and actually get there. And as you're soaking it in, what was going through your mind? Well, I, I thought about my old partner, Mike, who died on Mount Rainier and my dad who had passed away and how getting that far was kind of like, a, I was like the lucky member of the team that got to reach that dream and apply all the lessons they had taught me. Because I think that, you know, me standing on top of the mountain wasn't going to change my life. I'd be married to the same lady and have the same job and have the same friends. So standing on top of a mountain is not going to change my life. But picking that big goal and turning myself hopefully into a good team member and somebody being capable of that, I had to learn so much and become better at athletics and nutrition and teamwork and navigation. And all those difficulties that I overcame taught me to be more resilient. And I think that helped me be a better climber and hopefully a better team member. And I think I brought those lessons back to my community and family a little bit. And I think that's the big thing. When you pick a big goal like that, it turns you into someone capable of reaching that goal. You have to do more. You have to become more. And that's why I was so grateful that I, after this long journey, was able to glue it together and get close to that finish line of being one step short of the summit. Uh, but really, it was about all the things I learned along the way, not about just putting my foot atop a snow pile. And so I was really reflecting on what a long journey had been and all the things I'd had to endure and all the people that had helped me get that far. All the things that you learned along the way. You've mentioned two highly significant events, the fall into the crevasse, being there when the earthquake hit, the devastation that you saw, the death that you saw. Along the way, what has this journey taught you? Well, it's taught me that if you want to do something in life, you should pursue your passions. For me, it's mountains, but for you and others, it might be music or marathons or learning French or starting that business or getting your college degree. You pick that big goal and you're hoping to reach the goal, but it's the things you learn on your way to that goal that really are of true value. Yeah, it's great to stand on a summit or get that college degree, but it's the things you learned along the way. And you're going to need those things you learn, and you're even going to need the difficulties you endure. Even though they are not fun, all of those difficulties, the climbing accidents, the loss of friends, the, the physical injuries that you suffer, those things teach you to be more resilient, to be stronger, to be wiser. And you take those lessons with you to the next challenge, to the next opportunity. And that's why I call the book The Next Everest, because most people that are listening are probably not going to climb Mount Everest, but if they look at their life and pull lessons out from the good things that happen and even the worst things that have happened to them, you can pull lessons from those traumatic events. When tough things happen, it is traumatic and it takes a long time to try and get back on your feet and sort of put your life back together. But when something big happens, like an earthquake or a pandemic or a, a death in your family, uh, life doesn't quite go back the same way. You're different now because this thing has happened. So you have to ask yourself, what can I take with me? that will help me do a better job in the future and hopefully share that with the people around me. Because I think when things go tough, really what we're doing is taking turns, lifting each other up. You help me this week, put a little resilience into me. Next week, I'll try and be a good teammate and lift you up, put a little resilience into you. And that's how we get through tough things like expeditions and tough things like pandemics. Can you expand a little bit more on why you titled your book, The Next Everest? Well, certainly, in part, the obvious thing is I went to Everest once and I went back a second time. So it was my next trip to Everest. That's the obvious one. But like I said, most people aren't going to actually go climb Mount Everest and they don't have to. They're, they're dealing with other challenges in their life. And there's always going to be a next Everest in your life and in every listener's life. 
Hopefully it'll be something, a big goal that they want to achieve and they get fired up for and they train and they go achieve that big goal. But sometimes the next Everest is a difficult one. It's a crevasse fall. It's an earthquake. It's a pandemic. We've all had that thrown right in our faces over the last year and a half. And so whether you're setting out to reach a goal or just kind of chugging through life, there's always a next Everest ahead. And what you have to do is try and refine yourself into the best version of you and be ready to give it your best effort and help those around you because that's how we're going to get up that next Everest. Whether it's a good mountain or a tough one, we're going to have to help each other be resilient and do our best and get past that next Everest. And you know what? (laughs) There's going to be another one after that. Could be years ahead, could be decades ahead, but there's always a next Everest, so we have to be ready for it. And you talk about resilience. And in reading some of your work, you use the phrase personal resilience. What does that mean? That means when you get in a tough spot, whether it's a crevasse fall or suddenly your business fails, you look inside yourself and go, oh my goodness, I, I, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I want to do this. But when you look inside yourself, where does your resilience come from? And it's different for each person. For me, it was things my dad had taught me and my commit, commitment to honor Mike's memory and do my best for those guys in, in my own life because it honored the things they taught me. But for you, it might be your faith. Uh, your military background, your police officer code, your commitment to your community, uh, helping others that are not as fortunate as you, whatever it is that lifts you up and strengthens you, that's where you look for your personal resilience. And you may go, oh, this is difficult and hard and painful and scary, and I don't want to do it, but you think about the people that are counting on you. That's where your personal resilience comes from, and that can spur you into action to start taking better care of yourself and other people around you during that difficult time. Now, also in reading some of your work, you came across a reference to Bruce Lee and the idea that patience is passive resilience. That, that struck me for a reason. One, I'm a Bruce Lee fan. Great, like many me people, too. But uh, what does that mean to you? Yeah, the Bruce Lee movie that we, you know, he's, he's gave a lot of lessons in, in his movies way back long ago. But one of them, uh, I think it was Enter the Dragon. He's trapped in this room of mirrors. He tries to break his way out with his fist and his feet and even his nunchuck weapon. And all of a sudden he realizes he can't break his way out. And so instead of freaking out or getting aggravated, he sat down on the floor and he crossed his legs and he hung his weapon around his neck and he whew, started breathing in recovery. He was just waiting for something to happen. Someone has, someone's going to have to release him out of the room. He was, I was stunned by his patience. And for me, what it was, is I'm, I'm a pretty much a type A person. I'll get up early and put in more energy and try harder. And that gets a lot of things done. And that's what we call perseverance, that go, go, go thing. Don't quit. Keep going. Be perseverant. But when I was at the base of Everest in 2017, we were all trained up. We were acclimatized up to Camp 3, ready for our five-day summit push. And we figured we'd rest about three or four days and then start that summit push. But we had these waves of bad weather come through. So we had to wait three days five days, seven days, nine days, 11 days. And frankly, I was absolutely losing it. I couldn't wait anymore. My body had lost all its muscle. It was like day 55 of the expedition. I am sick of sleeping on the ice. And I just wanted something to change, but I realized I I can't force the weather to change. The only thing I can do is be patient. But I I realized if I was patient long enough, the weather will change, we'll get our chance. So in this case, being perseverant wasn't an active thing that I should do. It was being patient. Patience is a form of perseverance. It's passive perseverance. And if you wait long enough, the weather will clear, the economy will improve, the pandemic will die down, and then we can come out of our tents, out of our homes, and re-engage with the challenge and start getting life going the way we'd hoped it would go. And that was an important lesson for me for someone who's so go-go to learn that sometimes we have to wait and be patient. And what happened was the pandemic hit, and we all had plenty of a chance to apply those skills over the last year and a half. 
Embracing change and uncertainty. You also have written uh, extensively about that and, and that being part of somebody who is resilient, especially in these times, as you say. What does that mean to you? Embracing change and uncertainty. Well, you know, I mean, we all have dreams for ourselves. We want a, this thing to happen and that thing to happen. And we try to be persevering and collect skills and certificates and join teams and uh, join like-minded people. That's what we want to try and make happen. But life has its own twists and turns. And sometimes those twists and turns don't hit you until you're 20. But by the time you get to be my age and you get a little gray hair in the beard and gray hair on top, man, you've seen all kinds of changes and uncertainty. And um, when those uncertainties hit, if you push back on them and say, I don't want this, I, I reject this pandemic, I don't want this earthquake, uh, I, I'm not going to put up with this, I'm going to ignore it, that doesn't work. Um, the, the problem is here and ignoring it does not help. And what I've seen in earthquakes and, and rescues, I've been a rescuer on a number of times, it's the people that can accept that the change is here and embrace that and start adapting and going, okay, uh, this Everest 2015 expedition is over. I know you've been planning on it for years, but it's over. Now the question is, what are we going to do with ourselves? And we try and refocus immediately to helping those that need it, disassembling houses. When we get back to our home countries, raising money. That's embracing the situation and trying to adapt as fast as you can. And there's there's energy in that. That will make you more resilient. Instead of feeling sad that the expedition's over or depressed for all the people that lost their lives, it's like, okay. Uh, we can't bring those people back and we can't stop the earthquakes from happening. But what we can do is raise money and help rebuild Nepal and, uh, you know, get medical supplies in here. And that action injects you with energy and it becomes an upward spiral of resilience that I pass to you, you pass to me, and we pass on to somebody else. So embracing the, the changes, trying to adapt and accepting the uncertainty of it, that's, there's a lot of power in that. And that's what gets you ready to deal with these big challenges and to be ready for the next challenge down the road the next Everest, as I say in the book. It reminds me of when I went through uh, whitewater kayaking school and uh, the lessons I learned there was pretty much sometimes you can paddle and go where you want to go. And a lot of times the river just takes you where it wants you to go. <laughs> all you could do is just keep paddling and try and avoid the rocks. Right. And if you do that successfully time after time, you have a safe and fun run, I assume, right? Most of the time, yes. Yeah. Yep, that's that's a great way to put it as well. Excellent. Now, for people who want to read your books and follow you, you also have a blog. How do they follow you? Uh, where would they find you and find your books? Yeah, thanks for asking. That probably the the single best spot is my webpage, www.speakingofadventure.com. Speaking of adventure, and that's where they can follow me on social media. There's a blog there, and there's some information about my first book, The Ledge, and the second book, The Next Everest. And I'm always posting up uh, short stories from the mountains. I'm still a climber now and go on climbs here in Colorado and on expeditions occasionally as well. So I'm always posting some photos and some lessons about resilience and teamwork. And also I speak a lot uh, publicly to corporations and universities and bookstores right now. So I'm on the road a lot. So I'll put up notices about when I'm tra traveling around the country speaking and there might be a, be a chance for me to come to your town and get a chance to see these photos and videos and hear the stories in person. What's your next Everest? What's coming up? Yeah, well, it's kind of uh, just opening up right now. We're all kind of coming out of our, our caves and our tents here, uh, metaphorically, as the pandemic's uh, dying down. So right now, I'm out uh, just spreading the word about the book, The Next Everest, and there's going to be uh, five international editions coming out in the next year or so. So that's keeping me pretty busy. I try and uh, stay in shape here by trail running and climbing in Colorado. 
And once the pandemic dies down, I want to get back out there and tackle another peak. It probably won't be anything quite as tall as Everest, probably more like uh, South American peaks, maybe Ecuador or Peru. Uh, my friends and I like going climbing down there. So uh, just sharing the lessons for, for the moment that I picked up on all these expeditions uh, through speaking and through the book, The Next Everest, and then uh, trying to stay in shape and get ready for that next expedition once travel's safe and uh, go back out there and have a little fun in the mountains and get to see some more awesome beauty along the way. Outstanding. Well, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and have you share your experiences with us. The best of luck with the book, and I hope uh, in the not-too-distant future you'll come back and, and share more with us. It was great fun. I'd love to be back. And until then, you stay, stay safe and stay resilient. Take care. Take care. We'll see you down the road. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com, where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>